want to thank all of my listeners who come back again and again and again to listen to the wisdom and the words of our authors. And today, the joining me from Carmel, California, is Rebecca, Rebecca Costa. And Rebecca has a book out, new one, called The Watchman's Rattle, Thinking Our Way Out of Extinction. Good day to you, Rebecca. Thank you for having me. Well, we appreciate having you on the show, spending a little bit of time. Uh, I like to let our listeners know just a tad bit about you and a tad bit about you know your background and experience. Um, she's, she's a social biologist whose unique expertise is to spot and explain emerging trends and relationships to human evolution, global markets, and new technology. Uh, Rebecca joins distinguished business leaders, Nobel laureates, scientists, innovators, and Pulitzer Prize-winning authors from around the world to address growing concerns over dangerous threats such as global warming, pandemic viruses, terrorism, nuclear proliferation, and failing public education. A popular speaker at thought leader and technology conferences as well as major university, Rebecca is the former CEO of Silicon Valley startup, how do you say it? Days in Advertising, Inc. Uh, Design. Design. Her clients include technology giants such as Apple Computer, Hewlett Packard, Oracle, 3M, and on and on. She graduated from the University of California with a BA in Social Sciences. And as we said, she lives up in Carmel. Well, we will be putting up there, Rebecca, so you know all of your information, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and your website, so people can see some of the videos and the things you've done, which are truly fascinating. But as you mentioned, this level of complexity within our society continues to grow exponentially, that uh, this complexity really outpaces the rate at which our human brain can develop new capabilities. In your estimation, and based on the historical perspective that you articulate in your book, where is current civilization headed? Well, we're not headed to a very good place. Uh, it's not that, you know, we're going to fall off a cliff in 24 hours. I'm not a, as you can tell from my book, I'm not a doomsday sayer, but, uh, but we have to get real about what's happening to each of us individually, what's happening to our institutions, and what's happening around the world. According to uh, Google CEO Eric Schmidt, every two days we're generating as much information as we did between the dawn of humankind in year 2003. That means every night we go home on Friday night, Monday morning, that entire universe of information has been recreated, and we're actually supposed to use it. <laughs> and, you know, there's just, there's just no way that the evolution of our brains, the physiological evolution, can keep up with that kind of velocity. And it's not just the velocity at which change is occurring and information is being generated, but it's also the variety you know, we don't just have spreadsheets and emails anymore. Now we've got, you know, uh, uh, you know, big data analytics coming at us, and and we've got Facebook, and we've got, you know, I think IBM's last survey said something like 98% of the information that we're expected to use is what they call unstructured data. Right. And unstructured means that you can't get to it. You know, it's like a library with no card catalog. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so that's that's the other issue, making us and companies very vulnerable. Then, so we, we, we have the velocity, we have the volume, we have the variety at which uh, data is coming at us. And, and that has produced a huge problem with the fourth V, if you will, uh, which is veracity. I mean, I mean, for every study you find that says one thing on the Internet, you can find ten more that contradict it. Right. Uh, so I don't know about you, but I have a job. I can't <laughs> stay on the Internet all day trying to go back to source material to figure out if the fundamental study was flawed. I, you know, most people don't even have the ability, the capability or the training to do that. So well, it's interesting. I, I just read yeah, I just read an interesting um, study. Uh, I, I'm not going to be able to quote the journal but uh, scientists, even in the scientific community, just so people understand how deep the problem is, in the scientific community, they went back and tried to replicate something uh, in the order of 100 or 200 studies that had been published in the New England Journal of Medicine, and they were only able to replicate uh, about 40% of them, mm-hmm. <laughs> 60% couldn't be reproduced. Right, right. It just shows that... that that's a big problem in science. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and not too long ago, I, I did an interview with Dr. John Hallowell. And, it, it, you know, he talks about, obviously, um, this ADD, ADHD that we're having as a result of all of this and how it's grown exponentially in society. And I just believe, like you do, that, you know, we reach this level of ability to manage not only the information, but the velocity, as you said, and what to do with it, that we do become overwhelmed. And you cited that today's scholars and scientists who've studied ancient civilizations cited things like environmental factors over population, war, disease, politics, energy, food shortages as a reason for those prior civilizations collapse. How can the current civilization as we know it avoid these factors, adopt, adapt, and evolve in your estimation? Well, that's a good question. The one explanation, which is the simplest and most elegant explanation for why societies collapse. And by the way, when I use the word collapse, I don't, do, I don't mean we all die. It, a collapse to me, and my definition that I use, is it's, a, it's just a, a return to simpler systems which our brains are designed to manage. So, for example, the collapse of the global economic system would just mean that we'd go back to bartering. You know, mm-hmm. you would have some eggs and I would have some carrots and we'd meet in the street and we'd bicker a little bit until we got to a price we agreed to and then we'd make the exchange. That's what our brains can handle. What our brains can't handle are credit default swaps. Right, right. Uh, you, know, we, we, you know, even the smartest people in the world explain that to me 45 times. I still don't understand how, we, how credit default swaps were tied into subprime mortgages and created a worldwide economic recession. That chain we don't understand. Even the smartest uh, you know, investors and economists didn't understand it. Um, so we understand barter. We don't understand the other. Now you get into ETFs and you get into all these strange financial vehicles. By the way, I was speaking at one of the largest pension fund uh, um, group gatherings 
It was all these international guys that manage pension funds, just to give you some idea, that are the size of the uh, GDP of all of Australia. Mm -hmm. These are huge pension funds. And they were coming after me one after the other, confessing as though I were some uh, a priest. They were confessing to me that they're still investing in financial instruments that they don't really understand. Right. Well, uh, so, so this is yeah. So this is not unique to us. So the most elegant and easy explanation is that is to go back throughout human history to the Roman, Mayan empires, the Egyptian and Ming empires, and to see if there was a relationship between the complexity that the person on the street was trying to deal with, and whether that led to irrational public policy led to mythology, the pursuit and belief of mythology as opposed to making decisions based on facts because you couldn't get to the facts or you couldn't understand the facts. And that's in fact what I did in this book. I went back in time, back to earliest civilization to see if, if the person on the street was overwhelmed by complexity and whether there were any early signs that that civilization was headed toward collapse. And in fact, there were three early signs, early markers. The first was complexity outgrew our capability to manage it. The second symptom, uh, which is much more uh, dangerous, is that we start to substitute unproven beliefs with facts and facts and unproven beliefs, and we go back and forth, back and forth, and we can't tell the difference. Mm -hmm. Now, some people say we're in that stage now uh, where unproven beliefs cannot be distinguished from an actual empirical fact. The third stage is, uh, the final stage before collapse is public policy and decision-making is based on unproven beliefs and not on empirical facts. And then the third, the, the, the fourth and the final stage is a logical extension of that, which is that there's collapse because public policy is irrational. Some people are very worried after reading my book that we're between stage three and four. Some say we're already in stage four. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm not really sure. What I do know is this isn't going to happen overnight, but that we have time, adequate time, to turn the page mm -hmm. and not go the way early civilizations have. And I point to one such solution. There's many technological and scientific solutions, but I point out in this book um, one solution, which is we have neuroscience now uh, for the first time in human history. And if you think about this, it's quite uh, amazing that we can do this. You can put a skull cap on someone's head and watch what their brain is doing as you administer increasingly complex problems to that brain. And we're discovering that in addition to right and left brain problem solving, capabilities. There's this third form of problem solving that's ideally matched to highly complex situ uh, situations that's evolving in the human brain. And we've, neuroscientists have started to call this insight. Mm -hmm. And we're getting to the point now where we can see that about 300 milliseconds before you're going to have a breakthrough and connect two pieces of information that you've never connected before, a small part of your brain called the ASTG lights up like a Christmas tree. And this is now occurring repeatedly in the labs to the point where 
you know, if you know anything about science, when you get to a point where you know that one uh, symptom is going to lead to a, 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 di a different result, when you can when you can repeat that process over and over again, you're really on to something. So they are on to something relative to this third form of problem solving. And, you know, we call it insight. Sometimes we call it an aha moment where there's a breakthrough. But here's the really great thing. It's observable in all human beings of all education and experience background, all demographics. Yeah, and what's interesting, if you look at a historical perspective as well, you know, we abandoned much of the... Uh, spiritual perspective for this logical sequential perspective, but science has now come back and is merging and blending uh, both science and spirituality. And in essence, you know, who's to say exactly where this is coming from? You know, is it the the intangible areas of life versus the tangible? Now, one of the things that you state in the book is that the way we think and behave hasn't changed much from our ancestors. And you speak about actually all these super memes. Um, and one of them that you talk about, you talk about this uh, idea where it becomes much easier to describe the things we oppose rather than the things we advocate. And that it indicates the opposition has grown from a, this meme to a super meme. In your estimation, how prevalent has our opposition become? And is there a way out? Well, you know, you work in cultural change in large corporations, and, and I work in that field as well. And I can say that when you talk about uh, resistance and opposition, you walk into any successful, highly successful global corporation, and they have all the resources in the world, but they can't do what small, lean, and mean startups can Right. Now, that doesn't make any sense from a logical standpoint. No. They, they can pay people more. They have more technology. They have more distribution capability. More resources. They should be able to get to market. Yeah, they yeah. should be able to get to market a thousand times faster than a little startup of five guys. Right. Right? Or right. women, men and, men and women. But, but that's not what happens. Right. So you, 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 logically, you say, well, why can't? they become more innovative. Why don't these breakthrough disruptive ideas tend to come from large institutions that should be able to overwhelm the startups? And the reason is because what happens is opposition becomes institutionalized. Mm -hmm. And that happens in societies as well. In well, isn't that, a little right? bit of the, isn't that a little bit of the silo thinking coming in as well? People are protecting their turf. Absolutely. You see all those turf Absolutely, because what on. happens? What? Yeah. What happens to any disruptive innovation is it, and, and it's one of the hallmarks of disruption, by the way, and of true innovation is it will always necessarily cannibalize what you've done in the past. Mm-hmm. Yep. So the, it, one way to put it is if you watch a really good trapeze artist, right, he's holding on to one bar with one hand, and there's a split second where he lets go of that bar and he grabs on to the next bar. But there's a split second when he's suspended in midair. And large institutions, it, 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 through the process of trying to become operationally efficient, it is their mission to get rid of that period of time when you're suspended in air. Mm -hmm. 
I'd agree. That's the institutionalization. They don't want that I'm hanging in midair and I hope I grab the next bar. It's their mission to get rid of that. And so therefore they, inst they, they really work hard toward institutionalizing previous success and that becomes the obstacle to progress. Well, it's also their focus on certainty versus uncertainty. Um, you know, the, it's hard. There's a fearful state there. They've grown the company monetarily. Um, they're trying to protect their investors. There's a lot of these little areas that they're focused on, um, which, as you said, uh, impedes the ability for them to come to market quicker than these smaller, more nimble groups of people that uh, are making products and services which are disruptive in nature uh, and disrupting many of the things we're, we're doing. Now, you you have this uh, this personalization is blame. You call it the second super meme, super meme, and I love the story that that you articulated in the book. And I'd like you to just tell a little bit. Can we use the AIG debacle to make the point to the listeners about this second super meme? Because you were just talking about it, but boy, when you talk about personal personalization of blame, it really comes out there. Well. You know, what happens generally when things don't go well, and I don't think this comes as a surprise to anybody, no. is, yeah. is that we become blame-seeking missiles. Mm -hmm. And we believe that if we can identify the individual, the human being who was the culprit behind it, and we eliminate them, uh, we fire them, right, or we dismiss them from public office. That everything will get better. That everything, everything <laughs> will be fixed. Yeah. All right now, this is the the biggest delusion going, because when you look behind each of these failures, there's a, a systemic reason the failure occurred, and when you get rid of an individual, you've done nothing to cure the systemic issue, right? Right. So it doesn't matter if you fire the president of the largest automotive business, right, in America because the automobile companies weren't doing well and had to go ask for a bailout. You can get rid of that guy, but what does it say about the automotive business's ability to complete, compete globally? Have you done anything with that? No, you, you've done nothing with that business. So in each of these cases, and I use many examples, I use government examples where we go on a witch hunt, we eliminate somebody, and then we all go home feeling good about it. Mm -hmm. But the systemic problem uh, remains, and we're seeing evidence of that in Washington, D.C. right now. I think many people would agree with me, it doesn't matter who you plug in, right, to office, you wind up getting the same result. That's and that's because the systemic, yeah, the systemic changes haven't occurred. Those are very difficult. They're very complex to deal with. So what we would prefer to do is just switch out the players. Yes. And, uh, and we but keep that's doing not going to make any difference in, in reality. So one of the things that, uh, one of the problems that we deal with right now is we don't really have, or un we, we have them, but we don't understand them. We don't understand the process for fixing and solving highly complex systemic problems. Uh, and one of the examples I, I use is overpopulation as, as an example. 
You know, uh, I, I use the example of removing Mubarak from office in Egypt as an example. Yeah. So there was a period of time where everybody was convinced that Mubarak was the, the reason that Egypt's economy was failing. And so there was a, a big push to remove him from office. But had we really looked at what the systemic problem was, we would have seen that Egypt's population had grown, had tripled over the period of time. Now, I, 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 in 1981, when Mubarak took office, the population of Egypt was 44 million. Uh, today, uh, it's cresting uh, over 100 million, and it's going to reach 120 million by 2015. All of the economic problems that Mubarak faced uh, all had to do with population growth. I guess if you're going to double and triple population, you're going to have massive unemployment. Yep. Wages are going to go down. There won't issues. be enough schools. Right. There aren't going to be enough roads to travel on. Uh, all the complaints they had had nothing to do with Mubarak. There is not a leader in the history of humankind who could have tripled the number of hospitals, schools, roads, uh, sewage systems, uh, jobs in, in, in that amount of time. Yeah. And yet, uh, as soon as everybody got rid of Mubarak in Egypt, uh, they, we expected things to get better. Well, they didn't get better. And so we had the, the, uh, the, the Arab Spring. Mm -hmm. And we got rid of more people. And, and we thought things would get better. And, 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 but since the Arab Spring, conditions for the people on the street have not changed. In fact, by every economic metric, they've gone backwards. Well, it's Democracy a great... has done nothing for the man on the street after the Arab Spring. Yeah, and it's a great example to show, as you were saying, the systemic nature of this and that Mubarak couldn't have made all of these changes, yet uh, we do have issues um, that basically can be changed. And, and these super memes that you're discussing in the book are really a big uh, a challenge for us to overcome. Now, you state, you, you talk about this counterfeit correlation, you call it the third super meme, occurs as a result of, you say, three convenient practices. One, accepting correlation as a substitute for causation. Two, using reverse engineering to manipulate evidence. And three, relying on consciousness to determine base, uh, the basic facts. Now, uh, that is, as it becomes more complex, we begin to lower our standards for proof, is what you say. So what ultimate effect will having, will having lowering our standards uh, like this have on our civilization, on society? Because you're basically saying well, the, we're willing... Well, the basic to... problem, again, is not being able to make a distinction between facts and mythology. Mm -hmm. Let me give you a really concrete example. It's my latest favorite one, which was cholesterol-lowering medicine. Right. Now, I think next to antidepressants, cholesterol-lowering medicine might be either number two, number one, or number three of the medications that we take in the United States, as an example. And most of these medications, we say, well, if we lower the cholesterol, 
right, then that's good for heart health. Right. Because but we if were... you really look at the label, yeah, if you look at the label of the cholesterol-lowering medications, one of the potential hazards is it may increase the risk of heart attacks. Right. So we're taking and medicine. Alzheimer's, it, and Alzheimer's and a lot of other things, right? So there's a, a lot of other things. Yes. So we're taking medicine to lower the potential for a heart attack that may increase the potential for a heart attack, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But more importantly, if you really listen the next time you watch an ad on cholesterol-lowering medicine, they do not tell you that the cholesterol-lowering medicine will lower your probability of a heart attack. They don't, they don't ever say that. What they say is it will lower your cholesterol because there's actually no scientific evidence that lower, lowering cholesterol will prevent you from a heart attack. So again, another exa great example of how we've allowed this, you know, these super memes like this to affect the way we're thinking and lowering our standards. We'll say, oh, well, the, that the, sounds the good. Me, so this the mythology, company, yeah. Right? The mythology that exists is if I lower my cholesterol, it's good for heart health. And there's actually no evidence whatsoever that that's true. It's it you you know you point out in your book all of these super means you've got a series of them and and I love it because it's an easy way for the reader to really understand how we as individuals and society have adopted this and gotten caught pretty much in our own trap. Now, this fifth super mean that you refer to as extreme economics, I thought it was great. You state that this occurs when simple principles in business such as risk-reward and profit and loss become the litmus test for determining the value of people and priorities, initiatives, and institutions. So with this focus which is still, in my estimation, this is me personally, Greg Voison, 90% of the world businesses. How do we solve our unsolvable problems? And if you don't mind, tell the story around Dean Kimmen uh, and his new invention around the, the filtration system and water that he's come up with to resolve the water problems that the, most of the world has. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because the last, one of the last super memes that becomes an obstacle to to turning the the ship around, if you will, and not collapsing as a society, is to understand how deeply economics is affecting each and every decision that gets made. In other words, there are some things that must be done that don't make any economic sense. And you can't try to shove them into an economic model because they won't fit any economic model. They're just the right thing to do right. for society and for the progression of humankind. And unfortunately, everywhere from nonprofits all the way on to the largest corporations to governments, everything now has to pass the return on investment standard. And to that extent, everything has to shove into an economic business model that's viable or it is abandoned. 
Now, this can't be. I speak to a lot of nonprofits, and they brought in business people, and now they're using ROIs to try to determine what they invest their, their small amount of capital into. But they're having trouble now because social progress can't be contingent on profitability. Correct. And so they just, they just don't match up. And so many times when I'm speaking to them, I have to show them that they have to adopt new models, different models, and they're not economically based. So as an example of Dean Kamen, Dean Kamen, um, you know, 15 years ago, he developed a water purification system. It's small. It's smaller than the size of, a, of the smallest dishwasher you've seen. And, uh, and he said, well, gosh, 80% or more of the diseases which kill people in Africa are waterborne diseases. So you know what? If you fix the water problem, you get rid of 80% of the diseases and you don't have to keep sending doctors and medical supplies and you don't have these outbreaks anymore that, that wind up traveling to other nations very quickly via airplanes and, and other transport. And he said, we can get rid of all that problem if we just clean up the water. So we developed a slingshot. Now, the beauty of the slingshot is it has no replaceable parts, no carbon filters, none of that stuff. And second of all, it operates on a handful of cow dung. Yep. Mm -hmm. I said cow dung. So all you needed was to put the slingshot in a village that had one cow. And you could purify the water and get rid of 80% of the waterborne diseases. And but, go ahead. But where was he going to get the money for it? He can't sell it to the village. The village has no money. Right. Right? Uh, the pharmaceutical companies were all over this saying, well, you're trying to kill our market for medicine in Africa. Nobody wants that. Uh, so nobody could pay for the filtration system. Nobody was going to sponsor it because it had no return on investment. In fact, it killed profitability. And so what my argument would be, we could get rid of the problem. We have the technology. I think when you're done with my book, you realize there's no shortage of technology and solutions. The problem isn't whether we can fix it. The problem is the institutional resistance to fix it. Exactly. And if you try to shove every cure into an economic model, it's a guarantee that those rational things that would allow society to progress in a rational way will be killed off. And, you know, when, when we have societies that still are in competition versus collaboration, which are about profits versus purpose... Um, you you run into these challenges, and and as I say, I still see so many of these businesses and that same mindset. And you're right, you like in Dean's case with the the slingshot, it will always. I hope I hope it doesn't always be. Let me reframe that. Hopefully, it's not going to be always. Uh, challenging to do that and we can't rely on government for funding for all these things because they don't have it you're not going to just get governments to step up and say great we're going to do this one of the great stories you tell and one of my great mentors is Muhammad Yunus and the Grameen Bank 
And um, I worked with a gentleman and we we worked with Grameen Bank and how to overcome many of these super memes to build his socially responsible business and to help so many in need with these micro loans to become self-sufficient. Tell tell that story to the listeners. I think many of my listeners haven't heard it and, and why you believe this is a perfect example or one of the perfect examples of somebody who really was able to shift these super memes and make a huge impact in society overall? Well, Grameen Bank, as you know, was started by an individual, Muhammad Yunus. And um, Muhammad Yunus was kind of curious about a mythology, a super meme, if you will, in the banking community. And that mythology on which all of lending was based was that poor people who have no assets are a greater risk to lend to than people who are wealthy and have assets. Now, if when I say that to you, and if you're in the financial community, you say, yes, that's correct. Uh, that's how you get mortgages today. If you want a large mortgage, you have to have assets, money. You have to have a job that pays a lot of money. You've got to have a, a high credit report. But you're not going to get approved for a mortgage if you come in and you say, well, I don't have any assets, but I'm very hardworking, right? So we, we, we rank your risk, your credit risk, according to the assets that you've built up over time. But Muhammad Yunus wondered if that was actually true. He bothered to question it. And that's where all disruption and true progress comes from. It comes from taking a basic assumption that an entire industry has been based on and, and, and asking the question. So what he did was he took, I think, a group of five or six ladies who wanted to start a basket weaving business and had no assets, and he said, I will loan this to you. I will loan the money to go buy the materials to make the baskets, and you will have to pay me back on this schedule. And until you pay me back, I will not loan the money out again to another group similar to you that the banks won't give money to. Mm -hmm. and, and, so, and he made all five of them responsible, and they went off and they bought the basket-weaving equipment, and they not only paid the money with interest back to him, and I'm not talking about usury interest. You know, he didn't charge them 500% right. because they couldn't get a loan anywhere else. He charged them the normal bank interest. He didn't, he didn't reduce the rate. They not only paid it back, they paid it back early. They couldn't right. wait to pay it back. He also because found they out wanted it, the money to be re, Yeah, he, they wanted the money to be recycled to someone else. And so he did this several times. And each and every time, the money was paid back not only in full with interest, but early. Right. And if you and remember so part he began of that to go to, study, too, he found out that as he was doing this, that women were more responsible than the men. The men didn't have as good ability to pay back the loans. Um, a lot of them would drink, they got into alcohol, other, other kinds of things. But the women had the highest degree of success on payback of their loans. I, was, I thought that was an interesting insight. <laughs> that was so, very interesting. Yeah. And, and another thing that was very interesting was that at the end of a couple of years, the percentage of people who had paid their loans back was much higher than conventional banking mm -hmm. who were lending to wealthier people. Right. 
His numbers, his facts, not mythology, not super memes, not his unproven beliefs, his facts outmore conventional banking. And suddenly his numbers looked four times, ten times better than any other bank. And at that point, he began putting some real money out there. And in whole industry And, and to this up. day, Grameen Bank is the most successful bank in the world. From a, from a, from a, a loan repayment statistic, they outdo every other bank in the world. Well, and he's got, he solved another problem as well is, you know, that the poverty breeds more poverty. He virtually gave these loans as an opportunity for these individuals uh, to get themselves out of uh, poverty forever, right? Versus uh, that continual cycle. So it really is a truly amazing story. You know, you. It, it is an amazing story from a number of standpoints. And this gets back to the economic model. Could Muhammad Yunus have taken the position, well, they got nowhere else they can go, so I'm going to charge 400% interest rate, right? He didn't take that position. He said, I'm willing to get a competitive rate similar to other banks. Right. I'm just going to lend to a different market. But here's the interesting thing about that social problem. The other day I was talking to Tavis Smiley, who's you know a, a very well-known radio and television host. And, and, and I want to quote something that he said to me. He said, there is a freeway to get to poverty. It's very easy to get into poverty. He said, there is a sidewalk to get yourself out. Mm-hmm. That's a good statement. Yeah. And, and, and I, I had to really think about that. It's not hard to stumble, particularly to, to, in these days, to get yourself uh, in, into poverty. I, I work many times with people who, uh, just recently, a gentleman who sold his house and literally became homeless because his wife contracted a rare form of brain cancer, and they went everywhere to try to save her life. In the end, she died, and he and his children became homeless as a result of it. Now, we might say, well, you're just singling out one story, but I'll tell you, life has gotten a lot more ruthless these days. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't take much for someone who was a middle class, you know, had a, owned a home and had a good living to make a stumble, one wrong stumble, and they're on that sidewalk trying to pull themselves out. It's a great example of it. Um one of the things with that you that you talk about in this book, and we'll kind of sum up our interview here, is you mentioned that the, there's recent research, and I do, I've seen this now for quite some time actually, that reveals that solutions to difficult problems, as we've been discussing, are superior when people work in small groups other than working individually. And you know you're seeing this in uh, Adobe and Google and all these major companies where they've got these lean, mean. Uh, developers that are working in very small five and six person teams. Can you tell us about working in these neuro groups and the benefits to solving really complex problems, which we're seeing happen in a lot of industry today? Yeah, actually, scientists have been doing experiments. Uh, it started out looking at juries, if of all things, how juries made decisions. And then from there, a lot of the research was done in the military to look at what should the size of an optimal troop be and so on and so forth for quick decision-making and quick execution. 
And it's interesting that we know uh, from, from empirical study that the optimal size of any team is generally more than three people, but less than nine. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, somewhere in that window between three and nine groups, teams of between three and nine are most optimal in covering the most amount of ground in the shortest amount of time and executing quickly. So when you get above nine, you start to get a lot of things like social loafing, you get politics that get involved, you get hierarchical structures, competition, a lot of things start to, a lot of bad things that interfere with progress begin to occur over nine. Under three, you don't have enough critical mass, you know, really to get the job done. So, so that's the window. That's the striking window. Right. So one of the first things that happens to me is if I'm working with a group and I go, listen, you got 12 people in this room that are working on this project. You've got to vote some of them off the island. You know, and everyone starts laughing and goes, but I, you know, don't let it be me. And I go, well, but for efficiency's sake, I don't really care who it is. We're going to get a lot better, right, if five of you leave the room. Right, right. (laughs) So you can decide whatever that process is going to be, but five of you have to go. Well, and it's so true. And it, it, it is, you know, these smaller, more nimble um, more resilient teams that are that are popping up all over are helping to solve, and they're very disruptive um, in society with relation to the new technologies, the new services, the innovation, everything that's being created. And I totally concur with you on that. If there's any one thing you'd like to leave with our listeners here as kind of a parting thought um, with relation to the Watchman's Rattle and our way out of extension, extinction, what, what would you want to leave with our listeners, uh, Rebecca? I think what I'd want people to understand is it's not you, right? If you feel overwhelmed, if you, if you get the next uh, uh, iPhone and you can't figure out how to turn the music off, <laughs> if, <laughs> if you're sitting in, an, in a business meeting and it feels like, you know, you're overwhelmed with the technological change that you have to make, um, if, you just, if you just feel overwhelmed in making these decisions in your job, in your life, how to invest to retire, uh, you know, uh, what, what is the best college to put your child in, just understand that if the data is changing every 24 hours or 48 hours at the same rate that it changed between the dawn of humankind to the year 2003, the best thing you can do is arm your brain and also uh, do everything you can to avoid falling into the pitfall of one of these super memes that we discussed. If you can work around those super memes and you can help to develop some tools for your brain, you're going to be on the right side of progress. Otherwise, you're standing on the wrong side of progress. <laughs> well, I think it's it's sound advice. I mean, if they take your book and read about these super memes, it actually is a book of awareness. This book creates tremendous awareness about things that I think most people aren't even aware of because that is the super meme. The super meme does a good job of disguising this. Um, Rebecca, it's been a pleasure having you on Inside Personal Growth, imparting your wisdom uh, about the Watchman's Rattle, 
Thinking uh, Our Way Out of Extinction. Uh, you can get this book on Amazon, and we will put links to Rebecca's website, which I'll mention for my listeners, is www.rebeccacosta.com. She's got a Facebook page that we'll put a link to and a Twitter page as well. Um, Rebecca, thanks for being on Inside Personal Growth, sharing some of your insight, your wisdom, and knowledge about these particular fields. Well, thank you so much, and thank you for the good work you're doing.